Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 is where we'll start. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have received through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ." Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Wow, let's pray. Father, ah, my goodness, this is packed with truth and theology and, and doctrinal wonder. It, it, I, I don't know even how to express what I sense reading these words and, and beginning to comprehend what it is that is said here. I would ask, Lord, that by Your Spirit You would give us revelation so that we would comprehend these words. So that they would not fall flat on cold, dead hearts, Father, but on hearts beating and pumping and alive and ready to receive what You would say to us here this morning. I pray for every believer, every follower of Christ, that this would enrich and deepen and strengthen the walk. And I pray, Father, for any non-believer or anyone waffling or uncertain of the truth, that what is spoken here this morning, first would be your word, and secondly would penetrate deep into the heart, even unto salvation. Thank you, Father, that we get to be here and share this together in Jesus' name. Amen. My mother is a classical violinist, some of you know this, and I vividly remember growing up and hearing her play, but not going to concerts so much. In fact, when I was growing up and she was teaching English and my my dad was working and and Ron and I, in in our family, there wasn't a lot of time for her to do large uh, symphony performances, but she was in quartets all the time. And I remember Friday nights, Saturday nights in our home, that she would have members of her quartet come over, violin, viola, cello, and bass, and they would gather in our living room and would play hour upon hour. I remember going to sleep and hearing through closed doors the sounds of the music of that quartet continuing on into the night. And uh, I got into rock and roll, so you can see the effect (laughs) that it had on me. But I still love those memories, and I still, when I hear a string quartet today, my mind pops back to those days. What we have in our hands here in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians, is one of a quartet. 
The prison letters of Paul, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians are a classical quartet. Because there's music throughout. If you would pause and look for it, you see it in Paul's letters. The Christ hymn of Colossians chapter 1 that we studied and looked at before. The call toward the end of Colossians to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3. And he repeats that again in Ephesians chapter 5. And then in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 where he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. It's as if all four of these letters are beautiful instruments. Played together bringing a marvelous symphony, a marvelous concerto if you will. Played together. And that's why we're looking at them and thinking about them together and even mixing up the order from what you have in your Bibles because we're trying to look at them in what we believe to be the order they were written. That Paul wrote Philemon and Colossians together, sent them off together to the city of Colossae. The one for the church and the one for the man, Philemon. And then following that, writing Ephesians. Because Ephesians picks up on the themes of Colossians and explodes into this amazing musical moment. And then it rounds out with the glory and the joy of Philippians. So as we're looking at these, think about that. F.F. Bruce called Ephesians the crown of Paulinism. That is, of all his letters, if you were only going to read one, if you were going to the height of Paul's teaching, this is it, Ephesians. It is so uplifting, the letter to the church at Ephesus has also been called the epistle of the ascension. But not of Christ's ascension, of yours, of mine, the ascension of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul writes, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Talk about a letter of the ascension. And not only the promise that the church would ascend to be with Jesus, but that the church is in ascendancy. That those who are following Jesus are being lifted up, are already seated from God's perspective in the heavenlies. The ascendancy of the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he called Ephesians the most sublime and majestic expression of the gospel. He wrote, it is difficult to speak of it in a controlled manner because of its greatness and because of its sublimity. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he said, whoever would see Christianity in one treatise... Let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. This is a marvelous letter. And while it's not the last letter of Paul, it is certainly the most heavenly. If you look again at verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then he makes this statement, In the heavenlies in Christ. Your Bible might translate in the heavenly places, but the word is in the heavenlies. It's eparonios. We talked about this word on Wednesday night. I wanted everybody to be aware of it because this is a big deal. The eparonios, the heavenlies. Paul uses this word five times in the letter. It is a word that is only used by the Apostle Paul. The heavenlies with one significant exception, and that is Jesus who also used the word to say in John 3.12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you eparaniois, heavenlies? This letter truly shows us, reveals to us the church in the heavenlies. 
a heavenly walk, a heavenly gathering, a heavenly group of saints in the Lord, a heavenly fellowship. Now you may say, wow, my experience in church has been mostly earthly. Well, that's because the church has not, I think, been taught of the heavenly perspective enough. That we are saints, as my friend Brian Martin used to love to say, of the royal priesthood. That we are a heavenly people, heavenly citizens, involved in a heavenly thing. And we ought to be lifted up in our thinking, not pridefully, but passionately. And with confidence to what God is doing and to where He has called us, and that is to the heavenlies. Now, Wednesday we introduced this book, as I shared, gave it a three-part outline. I mean, it divides really in half. The first half is doctrine and the second half is application. But if you would have a three-part outline, you could look at it this way. Chapters 1 through 3 are the heights of the heavenlies. That is the doctrinal teaching of the church in ascendancy. The heights of the heavenlies. Chapters 4 and 5 would be the second section, which we could call the walk of the worthy. And Paul gets down into that practical application of walking as people who are worthy of being an ascended fellowship. And then finally in chapter 6, he ends up with the fight of the faithful. So the heights of the heavenlies, the walk of the worthy, and the fight of the faithful. And as Colossians revealed Christ lifted up, so Ephesians reveals Christ lifting up His church. That's what we're about to get into. But perhaps perhaps the lifting up of the church is not for the same reason we might expect. Verses 3 through 14. The reason I chose to do all of this together and to look at all of these verses together is it is one long sentence. 202 words. It is the longest sentence in the Bible. Now you might see periods here and some punctuation. That's not there in the original Greek. It just begins and Paul starts talking and he doesn't end for 202 words. Some of you husbands think your wives have a lot of words. Well, you haven't hung out with Paul. So he begins and he speaks. And by the way, in this letter, there are eight equally lengthy passages, not quite as long as this one, but eight long, what we might call run-on sentences of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Again in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 4, verses 11 through 16. And finally, chapter 6, verses 14 through 20. All of these long, non-stop sentences. And I tell you that because there's a cool word that explains or describes that kind of writing style. It's called pleonastic. This is a pleonastic letter. Pleonastic, what does that mean? It's, quote, the use of more words than those necessary to denote mere sense. (laughs) Or another word for pleonastic is redundant. And there are those who look at this and say, man, Paul, you're, you're just being redundant. How many words does it take to describe God? Huh. Good question. One German commentator, E. Norden, by his last name, called this the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever found in the Greek language. Monstrous! Well, I disrespectfully beg to differ. What you get here is not a monstrous run-on. You get the sense of the Apostle Paul in the flow of the Spirit. 
Have you ever found yourself in that place where you're thinking about God or you're talking about God and, and you can't stop? You can't find a good place for punctuation because there's just so much. Your heart is overflowing. Your mind is overwhelmed. The Spirit is speaking truth and you're just saying, well, I can't stop. There's, there have got to be more words here. And you keep speaking these words. And that's Paul. In the flow of the Spirit, there are not enough words to express the grandeur and the glory of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see Paul just beginning here, pouring out. I I imagine him there in that incarceration, in that rented house, but chained up. Roman centurion chained to him. Tychicus is sitting there, just trying to keep up. As Paul goes on and on and on, almost rapturously talking about these truths. Poor Tychicus. I think perhaps the reason why we see so many different secretaries, so many different amanuenses, that's what they're called, among Paul's letters, different people writing is because I think they could only do so much, they all ended up with carpal pyrus tunnel syndrome. (laughs) But for these long sentences, as I said, there are not enough words. There just aren't. See, I find myself in kind of the opposite place, running out of words to express what my heart feels. Coming to a place where I want to say more, but I don't have words to say what I sense, what I know, what I realize about God, about who He is. And so you just kind of smile and and look up at the sun. By the way, that bright light in the sky is called the sun. As it streams through the windows. What a marvelous thing. I was driving here this morning and I... (laughs) I love the springtime in Washington because typically we've just had some rain, but then the sun comes out and the water on the roads and on the grass and on the trees just sparkles. And isn't it amazing? Who thinks of this kind of thing? You know, dew on the ground. And the spark looks like crystals across the fields. And, and I see these things and I, I just, I have to smile. And I'll be driving along and I'll say, God, you were just so, I got nothing, Lord. There's nothing that says how marvelous you are. It reminds me of, a, of an old song, thousand-year-old Jewish song. I know you often think of thousand-year-old Jewish songs. I'm not sure why I do. It's an ancient add-on to the Passover Seder. And in fact, in most traditional Jewish homes, this week you would hear the singing of this song. It's called Dayanu. Dayanu. The chorus says, Dadayanu, Dadayanu, Dayanu, 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 Dadayanu. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> the word means enough for us. Enough for us. Here, here's the chorus. If God had just brought us out of Egypt and done nothing more, it would have been enough for us. If God had just given us the Torah and done nothing more, it would have been enough for us. And then Messianic Jews would add, if God had just sent the Messiah to us and done nothing more, it would have been enough for us. Die anew. But you know what? You begin to realize as you walk with God that enough is never enough with God. He never stops blessing. Just as there are not enough words to bless the name of God, so He never stops pouring out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
That is His nature. That is His desire. He is a God who is blessed. He is a God who blesses. I call that pleonastic blessing. He is a God who is into pleonastic blessing. Now, as defined in Crawford's Collegiate Dictionary, Volume 1, that would be the use of more blessings than those necessary to denote praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Having a hard time this week? Maybe it's time to pause and say, in spite of my difficulties, I am blessed far more than I deserve. In spite of my hardships, When I look back over my life and begin to count my blessings, I realize it is pleonastic. There are not enough words to describe the blessings that God has given throughout my many years. Some would say, oh no, I've struggled for years and years. My life has not been a life of blessing. It's been a life of hardship. And that's the victim mentality. And I'll talk about that more perhaps in a few minutes. But here in Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 3-14, through 14, where there are not enough words to express the glory of God, Paul attempts to, and so we're going to break this down into a triune blessing. A triune blessing. There are three aspects of this blessing, and each aspect, each verse, if you will, touches on the nature of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One more thing before we get into it. Years ago, I was asked about the Trinity. I was a young youth pastor, and a young lady came to me, and she wanted to know about the Trinity. Didn't understand it. Couldn't comprehend it. And neither could I. And I told her that. I said, this is beyond me. And we we tried to find some verses and some passages to bear out the Trinity. And I don't feel like I had enough to tell her at the time. Over the years, I have paid close attention to the Trinity in Scripture. That is the presentation of God, both as Father and as Son in the Christ and in the Holy Spirit. We see at the baptism of Jesus, all three aspects of God present. The Son in the water, coming up out of the water. The Father speaking from the heavens, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descending upon Him in the form of a dove. All three aspects of God, the Trinity. The Bible does teach the doctrine of the Trinity throughout, over and over, and we see it right here in this passage, in this 202-verse sentence. Verse 3, let's just read through it. We went through verse 6, so I'm not going to cover everything in this, but let's get a running start. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In those verses we see praise to the praise of God the Father. All of that is about God the Father. It is to the praise of God the Father. This is what we called Wednesday the great Barakah. Barakah in the Hebrew means blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Barakah. It is a very Jewish word and it is always applied to God. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the Barakah, the blessed one, is God the Father, is Christ the Son, is the Spirit of the Lord. So right here, God the Father is the one being blessed. 
Barakah, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you go all the way back to the earliest, the first Barakah, you'll learn something. Something, I think, amazing. Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. Abraham is coming back. He's still Abram at the time. Coming back from what's called the War of the Kings where he rescued Lot and he undermined all of these other kings with his crack guerrilla force of servants from his house. God gave him the victory. Abram is now coming back with with Lot and with the victory and with the spoils of war. And he runs into this interesting, interesting king, this enigmatic king named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes out to him, brings out bread and wine to him. Abram offers him a tithe of all the spoils, an act of worship. And we're told in Genesis 14.20, Melchizedek, first time we see this in Scripture, says, Barakah to God Most High. Blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. First blessing of the name of God in the Bible. And it comes out of the mouth of the mysterious Melchizedek. Why is that so interesting? Listen to what the Hebrew writer has to say about Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 verse 1, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was, first of all, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. King of Righteousness. And then also, King of Salem. That is, he came out of the city of Salem, which means peace. So he's King of Righteousness, King of Peace. The writer goes on and says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. That is this Melchizedek. Made like the Son of God. The word made like is literally image or expression or facsimile. What are you saying, Rick? I suggest to you that the first person to set the pattern of blessing the name of God was Jesus Christ. That Jesus, in a pre-incarnate appearance, revealed Himself to Abraham. Well, how can you say that? Well, I believe it was Jesus who in John chapter 8, verse 58 said, Before Abraham was born, I am. He also said... By the way, as they questioned him on this, he said, Hey, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now you can disagree with me on that. It's okay when we all get up to heaven and we're with Jesus and we ask him and I'm right and you're wrong. He'll still love you. But even if it's not Jesus, even if this is just a picture, a a prototype, if you will, of, of what Jesus would be about, this is still remarkable that the very first blessing at the beginning was of a Christ type, a Christ like figure who blesses the name of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're going to be talking about that next week. So again, as I said, we, we looked at these verses on Wednesday night, so I want to continue on. But it's interesting to see that verse 6 now uh, transitions to the next section 
of this long sentence with the phrase, in the beloved, look at it, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And the beloved is Jesus, so part 2, the praise of God the Son. In the beloved, in Him, that is the beloved, that is Jesus, verse 7. We have redemption through His blood, again, Jesus The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. His grace which He lavished. This is all Jesus at work. And note that while Paul is talking about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us and who has done all these things. Now we come into Jesus and suddenly we are being blessed in the present Jesus Christ currently blessing us. He is in us. He is through us. He's all over us. In fact, the word that Paul uses here is lavished. His grace which He lavished on us. That word lavished is parasuo, and it literally means overflowing beyond measure. You know, you measure something. This is not something that's even measurable. The lavishing of His grace is just poured out, overflowing. Think about it like this. The cookies are hot on the plate. The the chocolate chips are, are little pools melted throughout. And you look at that and, and you think, oh, i got to bite one of those. And you know what would be great with that? An ice cold glass of milk. So you get the glass and, and you've got someone there with you who's, who's pouring the milk and you hold out the glass but you're watching the cookies. And you're just watching the cookies because that's where you're going. And the milk is being poured and suddenly you realize that it's not stopping. It's going over the sides of the glass. It's running down over your hand. It's spilling all over the floor but you don't care because there's not enough milk to go with the joy of the cookies that you're about to have. You are being lavished by this but grace more than that it keeps on pouring it just pours and it pours it doesn't stop it gets all over the floor the kitchen begins to fill up that is God's grace lavished on us through Jesus it's the work of Christ it keeps pouring you can't stop grace do you realize that that as it begins to pour as it begins to flow there is no shut off valve who would want one Anyone really want to stand before Jesus and say, that's enough grace for me, thank you, I'm just fine. See, I'm into pleonastic grace. The more grace, the better. In fact, the Bible tells us, for of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. He just doesn't stop. It's like the feeding of the 5,000. You know, everybody had more than enough to eat, and there were leftovers. An overabundance of leftovers. And in fact, Paul grabs hold of this concept of an overabundance. Here he uses the word lavished. In writing to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 5 verse 20, he calls it the superabundance. F.F. Bruce quotes him on that. This is the superabundance of grace. The lavishing of grace. Listen to this verse, Romans 5.20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Now, the word for lavished is parasuo. You know what the word for abounded is? You're going to love this. Uber parasuo. Or we might say uber parasuo. I mean, it's uber grace. 
Not a grace that picks you up when you give a call. And we're talking overflowing, a big abundance. It means abounded all the more, the uber parasuo. And that is the lavished redemption through His blood. Don't you dare, followers of Jesus, don't you dare question the grace of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Am I really saved? Is His grace really enough for me? It's lavished. Do you have enough milk in the glass? It's all over the kitchen, man. And if you run out, guess what? There's a store in the garage fridge of 25,000 more gallons. And when you run out of that, you're living in Costco. (laughs) The grace of God is so much bigger than you can possibly sin. Now, I'm not saying go out and sin. In fact, Paul says, well, (laughs) should we sin more so that grace can abound? By no means. Why would you? But on the other hand, why would you fear or worry that His grace is just not enough for you? Are you really such an amazing sinner that you can out the grace of God? His grace is super abundant. And by the way, when, when Paul's talking about His grace here, he's not talking about just a future reality, a future and a hope. Christians like to quote Jeremiah 29.11, which wasn't even written to you. It was written in a letter to the exiles of Israel when they were in Babylon. Before they came back to Judah, God sent this letter to them saying, I know the plans I have for you. There are plans to give you a future and a hope. And so Israel would have one. And yes, we have a future and a hope. But you know what we have in Christ Jesus? We have a now. A right now. I am not just hanging out, holding on by my fingernails, hoping that maybe, perhaps, someday, there might be just enough grace to get me in. No. I know I'm going in, but I have grace right now. I'm living it right now. I am redeemed right now. Redemption is not just for the heavenlies. Redemption is on the plane of history, my friends. It is our lives right now. So why would we ever doubt His lavishing grace? Have you? Are you among those who says from time to time, I just don't know if His grace covers me? That's victim mentality. And when you come to victory in Jesus Christ, you leave the victimization behind. That is not how we are called to live in fear and fret and worry. We are called to live confidently I have had to return to this kind of teaching over and over and over. I get letters, I get emails from believers who aren't getting it. Who don't understand the lavishing of grace. The overflow, the superabundance. But John wrote in John chapter 20, verse 30, after writing his entire gospel, he said, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That is life then and that is life now. And we have been given everything we need to have that confidence, to be completely awash in the grace of God and in His redemption. Years ago, Peggy Noonan that uh, speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, a Wall Street Journal columnist, she wrote the following. 
It's odd that some Christians see themselves just as the media does. As bland guys in gray suits with gray buzz cuts. They ought to see themselves as young Marlon Brando types on a Harley. I like that. For they are the true anti-establishment. They are the true rebels with a cause. Look at verse 8 continuing. That which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Paul loves a good mystery. The Mysterion. And there's none better than this. 21 out of 27 times we see this word mystery, musterion in the Greek. 21 out of 27 times in the New Testament, Paul's the one using the word. He likes to refer to the mystery. And he points out very clearly the mystery unfolded, the revelation of the mystery, the last page of the book, the aha, is the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, through the crucifixion. Salvation by the cross. And Paul says this very clearly, and it's important to note. It was to the Jew first. And then also to the Gentile. Romans 1.16 Salvation first came through the Jew and to the Jew, and then spilled over, if you will, super abundantly to cover Gentiles as well. Back in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul said, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So the Jew first... It came to the Jews, but but then there was a hardening among the Jews. We're talking uh, in general. And that hardening among the Jews happened so that the Gospel would then go out to the Gentile world as well and all people would have the opportunity to receive the superabundance of grace. But don't think that that means that he's through with the Jew because it's going to come back around. And as Paul writes, all Israel will be saved. As the mystery was revealed, as it came to be, first to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, and then as it spread out among the Gentiles, we read Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Started with the Jews, spilled out into the Gentiles, moved among the Gentiles the mystery of salvation by the cross. A crucifixion, a death, a sacrifice that is so huge, it provides the superabundance of grace. It's the blood that keeps on flowing. It's the blood that never stops cleansing. It is the blood that is sufficient to cover if every single person on earth in all history repented and came to faith in Jesus, the blood of Jesus would be more than sufficient to cover all of that. And in that, we read Paul saying in verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. You know, you read things like that and you go, huh? A view to the administration of the full... What? 
What is Paul saying here? It's one of those Pauline sentences. Don't let it confuse you. It's actually very simple. What Paul is saying is that God planned for the revelation of what used to be a mystery. He planned all along to reveal this. That's the administration. It was organized in the mind of God that this is how it was going to come to pass. And it would literally fill up this whole age, bringing it to a completion right up to the very end. And what is the very end? What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Paul tells us it is the summing up of all things in Christ. It literally is when that last person, that last Gentile, finally comes to faith in Jesus. Wait, are you being universalist, Rick? No, I'm not, because many Gentiles will not come to faith in Jesus. But God knows who the last one is. And when that last person who would come to faith in Jesus comes to faith, it's over, the church goes. Which means we're all waiting for you, whoever you are. Would you please just believe? So that all things can be summed up and the fullness of the Gentiles can come in and then God's going to go to work on Israel. And then there's going to be this marvelous, amazing salvation of Israel. It will take a tribulation to get through it. But God is going to do it. Jesus said, Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He started it all and trust Him, He's going to end it all. Jesus is going to see it through. Verse 11, In Him also, so we're still in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. We have been predestined to an inheritance. That doesn't take away your choice, my friends. Please understand that. We studied this in Romans chapter 8. It's absolutely clear that God foreknew the choice that you would make. And knowing that you would choose Him, He then predestined those who would choose Him to salvation. He didn't take away choice from some. He doesn't say there are some people who are going to be saved because I've chosen them, and others I just haven't chosen because I just don't like their face. (laughs) I don't want to choose them. I'm going to pick and choose. No. God says, I knew. I foreknew. Every choice that would ever be made. And I love this because what He's saying is, in the moment that Mary chose Him, God sat back and says, I knew she was going to do it. So even before she chose me, I predestined her to salvation. I predestined her inheritance. It was already laid in. She just had to make the choice, but I knew she was going to make the choice, so I already prepared the inheritance for her. It's like a parent who has yet to have a child, but starts putting away for college fund, or putting away for an inheritance. Well, you don't even have a child yet. I'm going to. But even more so, God knows the name of that child the face of that child, the heart of that child, and the choices of that child. And so you have chosen Him. You have an inheritance. Remember, we have an amazing inheritance. We are infinitillionaires. All of us. You know, millionaires times infinity. Whenever I say goodnight to my kids, Naomi and David, like most kids, they find as many ways to keep me in the room as long as possible. 
And so I'll say, I love you. And Naomi will say, I love you more. And I'll say, I love you most. And she'll say, I love you more than most. And I'll say, I love you mostly more. That doesn't work, you know. And we go back and forth. And finally last night I said, I love you to infinity and beyond. And I closed the door and went upstairs. (laughs) And I hear her in the wall going, I love you to infinity and beyond plus 20. (laughs) Our inheritance, my friends, is an eternal infinite inheritance in the Lord God that He chose for you because you chose Him and He did it all by the counsel or after the counsel of His will. That's cool. Who's God's counselor? Who does God go to for therapy? i tell you what, if anyone deserves to go to therapy, I would say it's the Lord for having to deal with us. You can just see him sitting on the couch, laying back and going, I have the most dysfunctional family. I don't know even where to begin, Doc. Who is God's counselor? Who does, who does he run things by? You know, he has an idea. I want to check this with someone. Who does he bounce things off? Job, in the midst of his despair, said, Job twelve thirteen, With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has informed him? The most foolish thing in the world is supposing that we can sit in the chair while God sits on the couch. Thinking actually that you can be a counselor to God. Well, I, would, I wouldn't do that. We do it all the time. Lord, why are you doing it this way? I got a better idea. Let me counsel you on this. God of all glory and creation, I have some thoughts that might help your whole plan. Indulge me, would you, Lord? And speaking of the foolish, peacenik, false prophets on the eve of Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon, Jeremiah 23, 18, tells us who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word. Who has given heed to his word and listened. I mean, we can apply that to our world leaders today. Who's listening to God? Who's going to him for counsel rather than thinking we can counsel or direct history by our decisions? Who would presume to be God's counselor? It's anyone who would rely on human formula human wisdom, human strength. And ironically, it's those who play the victim. If you are a victim, if what often comes out of your mouth is, woe is me, how could God, why does He? Then you are presuming to counsel the Lord. You are presuming that you know something that our infinite, eternal God does not know. And you might not think of it as arrogance, but it is. When we would actually presume to counsel the Lord? D.H. Lawrence once wrote, I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. Now the closest I've ever seen is my dog Reggie. He can make himself look like he's pathetic. But it's all just a biological reaction. He has learned that if he makes that little Reggie face that he gets a treat. Or he gets let out of his pen. Or he doesn't get swatted for going on the carpet. 
He's 11 years old. We're still trying to potty train this foolish dog. <laughs> and nothing to do with anything. But, <laughs> but does self-pity ever cause you to doubt God's hand in your life? The woe is me. Maybe it's worth asking, next time you're feeling sorry for yourself, am I now God's personal counselor? Paul wrote in Romans 9 verse 20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? How come he gets, why does she have, why are they, and I'm only... And and Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you now the potter? Are you now the counselor? Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And I remind you that of Jesus, it was said, Isaiah 9.6, He is the wonderful counselor. So God has done all these things after the counsel of His will. Now watch this. We're still praising Jesus here. We have said the Barakah, blessed be the name of God the Father. Now we're, we're praising Jesus, but we're crossing over into the final praise. But before we do so, we see this distinct parallel plan of God for the Jews, Israel, and for the Gentile. Watch this, verse 12. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Who were the first to hope in Christ? The Jews. Long before Jesus ever came, the Jewish people were the first to hope in Messiah. The first to look forward to Messiah. The first to consider that Messiah would come and oh, when He comes, then we'll have salvation. The Jews were the first to hope. They will also be the last to hope when they see Him coming. And they will be saved by Christ. But now, we cross over into verse 13. In Him you also... You also? Yeah, not those who are the first to believe, the first to hope, but now the rest of you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And you also is one of the sweetest phrases ever uttered and ever heard by the ears of a Gentile. Because in this verse, Paul is saying full inclusion. That now that lavished grace by those who first, or on those who first hoped in Jesus, now it spills over. Now it floods. Now it reaches Gentiles as well, who now also, by Christ, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's part three. To the praise of God the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Promise here in verse 13. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What exactly does that mean? 840 B.C. Here was one of the many promises that was given. Joel chapter 2 verse 28, It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 2,000 years ago, 
the last days went live as that promise began its fulfillment. So 2,840 years ago, Joel made the promise. I was actually asked this last week. Rick, what do you think about Joel chapter 2? What do you think about the pouring out? God says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Has that happened yet? Yeah. Yeah, it has. 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit. The pouring happened on that day. The receiving of that outpouring is now to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. It's like the pool is filled. Jump in, man. Dive in. Receive the Spirit of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all mankind. That is, anyone, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, now can receive the Holy Spirit of the living God. How do you receive Him? Dive in. Open your heart to Him. Accept Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will receive, Peter says, Acts 2.38, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Believe in Him. Receive Him. Repent. Turn to Him. And as I said, on Pentecost, that Jewish feast of Shavuot, it happened roughly four weeks after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Ten days after Jesus had ascended Himself back to heaven, ten days later, the sound of a violent rushing wind, tongues of fire appearing above the disciples gathered in that house. And the mighty deeds of God began to be declared by all those disciples upon whom the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Languages that everybody there were hearing their own languages. Sixteen that are listed and probably more that were present hearing in their languages the Barakah, the blessing of the name of the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on those who believe, anyone who believes could receive this. And then Peter stands up. You remember the scene? He stands up and he quotes the prophet Joel and Peter in essence says, This is it. Here we go. The last days have begun. The Holy Spirit is being poured out right now. What you see is not drunken men. (laughs) What you see is people filled with the Spirit of God, praising the name of God. And he goes into this marvelous sermon, first sermon of of the newly formed church that day. And as he preaches, he talks about Jesus' recent crucifixion, his resurrection. And then he says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Which I submit to you was not just the 11 apostles or the 12 gathered there at that time, but was all those disciples, 120 gathered there, who were witnesses of the risen Christ. You're not sure about this? Well, just ask Matthias. Uncertain about this? Check with Mary. Not not sure you believe this? Go ask Joanna. All of those gathered there were witnesses of these things. And Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and you hear, the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Spirit of God was promised all the way back as far as Joel. Ezekiel talked about the Spirit of God, the new heart that would be given. Jeremiah talked about the Spirit of God. I will pour my Spirit on you and I will write my law within you. The Holy Spirit of promise. But why did He do it? Why did He promise? Why did He give the Lord of His own Spirit? And Paul tells us, for a seal and for a pledge. For a seal and a pledge. 
There in verse 13, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The seal is shragizo in the Greek, and it means a mark or a stamp. Like a signet ring. A seal. It could be a signet ring. It could be a stamp that you would use. You would stamp in wax. When Solomon had the great logs, the great cedars of Lebanon, they were chopped into logs up in the Lebanon area. King Hiram and his men up in Tyre and Zidon, they, they would send these logs down along the Mediterranean coast. And they would be received there, probably at Joppa, or one of the seaports of Israel, and then brought on in to be used for the building of the temple. How did they know they belonged to Solomon when they arrived? They would be stamped. They would be sealed on the log. And so that, it, you know, they would know, okay, this is Solomon's stuff. A mark, a stamp, a seal. It could be a brand. But whatever it is, the seal authenticates ownership. When you receive the seal of the Holy Spirit, you are owned. You have the stamp of God. You have an expressed belonging. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 9. We did a whole study on this when we were in Ezekiel, and it's fascinating to me. The prophet had a vision where God said, go and put a mark. He tells an angel, go and put a mark on all of those who, who find abhorrent what's happening here. In other words, those faithful to God put a mark on them and he went around putting a mark. And the, it's interesting, the word mark in Ezekiel chapter 9, the word is tav. The Hebrew letter tav, which in Ezekiel's day was a cross. Go mark my servants. And so they were all marked with a little cross. Revelation chapter 7, Revelation 14, we see the marking of the 144,000 Mormons? No. Jehovah's Witness? No. The 144,000 Jewish Witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Bible's clear about that. And those evangelists, those 144,000 are sealed for evangelism in the tribulation. So they're marked the same way. They all have the mark. Guess what? You got the mark. When you receive the Spirit of God, He becomes your seal. He is seen in you by the Lord. When God looks at you, He sees His Spirit having marked you belonging to God. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And yet some still say, how do I know? How do I know that if the Spirit has testified with my spirit, I've never heard Him. He never told me. How am I sure the Spirit's testified with my Spirit? Let me tell you something. He just did. He just did. When? Just now. When we said the Spirit has testified with your Spirit that you are a child of God. That if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have received the seal of the Spirit. Guess what just happened? Whether it sounds like my voice or not, the Holy Spirit just told you, you're sealed. I got you. Will you believe it? Or are you are you going to accept that? Well, no, that was Rich just trying to make a point. No, no, we're just reading Scripture and you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and He just told you, so believe it. And by the way, if you're still uncertain, listen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Here's the seal. Quote, the Lord knows who are His. 
The Lord knows who are His. So even on days when you're a little uncertain, can you at least be confident that He is not? That He is certain as to those who are His? That He knows you are His? You don't even have to know. But He knows. Put your confidence in that. If you are in Christ by faith in Him, He sees His seal on you. He's given you also, in addition to this, a pledge, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Wait a minute. With a view to the redemption. Are we redeemed already or not? Because just a few minutes ago, Rick, I was taking notes, and you said we're redeemed right now. But now, Paul says, with a view to our redemption. Which one is it? It's both. We have been redeemed. We are redeemed right now. The price is paid. The work is done. But we have yet to experience the full ramifications of our redemption. Oh, we're redeemed, but we're still in flesh. And i got to tell you, I have some days where I'm feeling less redeemed than other days. Some days when that redemption experience isn't fully there. I know I'm redeemed, but I'm struggling along. And Paul says we have a view to the redemption to come. The Holy Spirit is God's pledge that I am going to come into full knowledge of my redemption. Do you get that? The pledge, the promise, you are going to see it, you will know it, your inheritance, your redemption, the overflowing of the grace of God, we will come into a full realization of what that means. See what I meant when I said this is a heavenly letter? This is where we're going, my friends, to the heavenlies. Not to infinity and beyond. To beyond infinity and beyond the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. A view to my redemption by the pledge of the Spirit. The word pledge is arabon. And it's a word to note because we see it here. He has given us as a pledge of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit, the arabon, but it's not a Greek word. It is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is, jot this down, arabon. It's a Hebrew word stuck right here in the text that Paul uses. What does it mean? Deposit. Down payment. You go to buy a car, you put down a down payment. You go to buy a house, you give earnest money, we call it earnest money. Well, guess what? God gave His Spirit in earnest as a pledge, as a down payment of the fulfillment of our redemption. Guaranteed. What fascinates me here in reading through verses 3 through 14. And seeking to understand. And by the way, I would encourage you to pour over this some more because there were many things we didn't even have time to cover, to look at. Sometimes my job is not to give you the full expression of what the Scripture says, but just to whet your appetite. So I hope you're hungry and thirsty for more. And I encourage you to read over these verses and pray them through. But there's something else here that absolutely fascinates me. And it's not the marvelous declaration of every spiritual blessing. Oh, that's wonderful, but there's more. 
It's not the wonder of chosenness or, or holiness or blamelessness, which is absolutely marvelous. It's more. It's not the current work of redemption, forgiveness, grace that is ours right now. No, it's more. It's not even only the future experience of our inheritance. I told you, this is a pleonastic sentence. It's more than words can tell. And what we do see in this threefold triune concerto, we see three movements, each of which crescendo to the glorious finale of the whole piece. What are you talking about, Rick? He blesses the name of God the Father, and then he says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then he magnifies Jesus the Son, and he says, to the praise of His glory. And finally in verse 14, he reveals the seal and the pledge of the Holy Spirit. To what? To the praise of His glory. And so you see, verses 3 through 14, Though it is about the lifting up of God's people by Jesus Christ, that is not for the sake of God's people. It's not for us. It's not about the church. It is, but it's not. It is so much more. Every single thing that God has done in this world, through you, in you, to you, is to the praise of His glory. And that's the good stuff, and that's the bad stuff. That's the joy, and that's the sorrow. Again, consider God's servant Job. What is Job's entire story about misery, suffering, sorrow, depression? No. It is to the praise of His glory. And in your life, my friends, if you ever ask the question, why is my life the way it is? And that could be good or bad. Why am I so blessed? Why does everything just seem to work out? Why have I been given what I've been given? If you have those moments where you look to God and say, I'm overwhelmed, you've done so much and you continue to do more. Why, Lord? It's to the praise of His glory. On the other hand, if you're saying, why have I had to suffer? Why is my life hard? Why have so many things gone wrong and I'm sitting here in church on a Sunday morning and I'm worshiping you and I'm praising you and I'm following you but it doesn't seem to make life better why Lord why to the praise of his glory without giving you all the personal details our brother and sister John and Lisa Adelot have kind of been through the ringer over the last few weeks a lot of negatives a lot of difficulties a lot of hardship A lot of me saying, John, I'm praying for you, bro. I just don't want to be in your shoes. (laughs) You know what? At the end, at the culmination of all of these bad things, you know where we found John? Praising the Lord. Standing up here on the stage with his guitar, worshiping God. What was he thinking? He should have been home with his head in the toilet. Just depressed. Well, if that's the way my life's going to be, I'm... Hey... Listen, your life is the way it is to the praise of His glory. Good or bad, highs and lows, majors or minor keys. We say, why Lord? Why? Because we are made to be instruments of His praise. We are made to sing the song, and sometimes the song has a minor key. To the praise of His glory. 
We are instruments of His praise by the arrangement of the Father. Under the direction of the Son in tune with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 43.21, he writes, he says, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. And if you would know all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies right now, then determine, regardless of circumstance, to live to the praise of His glory.